Welcome to HCMA Off the Record, your behind-the-scenes look and listen into the world of emergency management. This podcast is brought to you by Muriel Bowser, Mayor of Washington, D.C., and the District of Columbia Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency. From preparedness tips to intra-agency coordination to advice from the men and women responsible for protecting the district, HCMA Off the Record shares it all. Whether you're an EM nerd like us or learning about emergency management for the first time, come along for the ride. Welcome back to HCMA Off the Record. Last week, we spoke with Martina and Eliza about human trafficking. With so much great information shared, we've broken up our interviews into two episodes. Let's jump back into our conversation. And I think that also applies to... um, people who have disability benefits, where they're exploited for their benefits as well. Could you elaborate you are on that, so right. I am so glad you raised that because one, we, we have databases of every criminal and every civil case brought in the United States at the federal level. And so we mine those databases to see whether there are trends that you wouldn't see on the ground, but you can see from sort of 50,000 feet. Right. And one of the trends that one of the very smart lawyers in our office, Sarah Bessel, recognized was trafficking of people with disabilities, and particularly trafficking of people with intellectual disabilities. Mm. And, you know, we had heard about it anecdotally, but when we started to drill down in the case law, we were horrified with... People targeted, in Eliza's word, people targeted because they had SSI, because they had Social Security income and disability income, and they would be targeted by traffickers who would say to them, again, not kidnapping them, but say to them, you know, you need a representative payee. We can help you. You should move into our house, and you can be like a member of our family, and we'll take care of you, and we'll just be a representative payee. So for a little while, maybe that works until they build up the trust of that individual. But then things change. And so one, again, one horrible case in Philadelphia, U.S. versus Weston, a group of traffickers came together. They recruited people with disabilities, and once they got their disability check, They literally locked them in the boiler room of the apartment building, and one of them starved to death. Now, that's an extreme case, but it's a case where the traffickers also put some of those victims in forced labor. They took some of the victims from Philadelphia all the way down to Florida and put them in forced prostitution. They forced one of them to have a baby. Right, so this 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 was a complete outlier horror show. Right, but for every case on that end of the horrific spectrum, there are less extreme cases where people are being targeted for their benefits, and then after they receive the money from the benefits, the traffickers decide, well, I can earn even more money. I can get more if I force this person into forced labor or into forced prostitution. And so we did a whole fact sheet. It's available on our website on the intersection between uh, disabilities and human trafficking. And there's actually now an inter- an, a national working group that's run by an organization called IOFA. And the national working group, along with the National Disability Rights Network, is keeping an eye on these issues, again, realizing that particularly people with intellectual disabilities can be targeted rather viciously. 
So we've talked about a little bit of the recruitment tactics. Can we elaborate a little bit more on uh, signs and indicators, especially for our community members who may feel as if maybe a family member or a friend is being trafficked and exploited? Um, Eliza, can you expand a little bit on indicators, please? Well, I would couch the indicators, A, in what the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children see are going to be very specific to the children reported to us. So um, hidden populations, those, for instance, familial trafficking or for runaway and homeless youth who may not be reported to us because, for instance, maybe because um, they were being abused in the home or uh, because of their sexual identity, they're kicked out of their home and therefore they're not going to be, unfortunately, uh, reported missing to the National Center. Um, and therefore wouldn't be in our kind of data or our identification mechanism. So right. I, I want to always couch that caveat in anything we put forward. Um, however, some things that we've definitely seen, certainly across the board, running away in itself is a huge indicator. If a child is running away for more than you know an hour uh, because they're angry at mom and dad, but for significant periods of time, or especially multiple times, uh, we're starting to see likely that child is either running from something, which again we may know would be a reason that they would be targeted by traffickers, or running to something because they are being coerced. Um, for instance, at the National Center uh, last year of the 26,300 uh, endangered runaways, and we always say endangered to dispel that other myth that right. sometimes children who run away are not in danger, that they chose to go. Um, that one in six of them we identified as either likely or confirmed uh, child sex trafficking victims. And when we say likely, we, we set that bar very high for data and consistency. That means that there was an ad of them online or that uh, they were recovered in an area like a hotel room or somewhere else known for prostitution. Um, different indicators such as that were. So, so number one, if a child's running, it's something to pay attention to, right? Um, beyond that, there are certainly indicators. These are available on our website, um, but things that we've noticed, if a child is recovered or is found with multiple hotel keys, um, large amounts of cash that they're not able to explain. Uh, another thing, you know, kids these days have tattoos. I, w I got a tattoo in high school. I would hate for somebody to try to <laughs> figure out what it means. Um, but I think that if you see a child with a tattoo that they are unwilling to explain, especially if multiple kids have the same one, um, if there is a young woman with uh, gang tattoos, because certainly in some areas we've seen dynamics of um, gangs being involved in trafficking, or if there is something like loyalty, property of, money, um, some severe language that you would imagine somebody might not want on their body, the unfortunate trend that we continue to see growing is that branding is a way for traffickers to maintain that idea of control and ownerships over their victims. Um, other indicators, uh, again, would be things like being involved uh, with people in their lives who are already involved in the commercial sex um, trade. And so looking for those types of things are, are at least the beginning place to ask questions. And again, we have a full list of indicators on our website, missingkids.org. Great, thank you. So on the labor side, you know, it's interesting because people notice things that seem odd and I think sometimes they're reluctant mm -hmm. to ask or reluctant to phone it in. Absolutely. So I'll just give you an example. There was one call that came through on the hotline and the tip was 
There's a woman who comes out of a house, but only to bring out the garbage, and she looks sad. So that's the tip. So it turns out that was a trafficking victim. She had been held in that house in forced labor for years, and the neighbor was right. She only left to take out the garbage. That was it. So eventually she escaped, partly because someone called and was worried that they never saw her out on the street. There's another case that was just prosecuted in Texas involving a little girl trafficked to the United States literally to be a house slave in the home Mm. of wealthy individuals who lived in Texas. And neighbors saw that little girl, and they testified at trial that they saw the little girl walking back with big bags of groceries, and they thought it strange because the little girl wasn't even taller than the mailboxes in this suburban neighborhood. Right. So they thought it was strange that such a small child would be going to the grocery store and hauling back the groceries all by herself. Right. But it took them years to report it, and that child was stuck in that house for more than a decade. Oh, wow. Before anybody reported it. Similarly, there's a, there's a wonderful... I try to read all of the survivor um, memoirs mm-hmm. that I can. I feel like it's really important to read everything <laughs> that people in the survivor community have published. And so there's one book by a woman named Shima Hall. She was trafficked as a child into a wealthy neighborhood in Orange County, California. And we're not quite sure how that case came to light, but it seems that that case came to light when a neighbor looked across the little swath of grass between the McMansions Mm -hmm. in this wealthy neighborhood and noticed that a little girl was doing dishes at 1 o'clock in the morning, and they never saw that little girl at school or outside playing with the other kids. And again, someone called Child Protective Services and said, something's wrong, this does not look right to me. Right. Right. So those are, those are examples where you know, someone actually raised a red flag. There are cases also that we've seen where domestic workers taking care of children have been forced to stay with the children in a hospital room for literally weeks at a time, as if they're the child's mother, right, right. living with that child, except it's not the child's mother. It's a domestic worker who's being forced to live in the hospital to make sure that that child is never alone. Mm. And, you know, you would expect the nurses and others to ask why this person who's not the child's mother is living in the room 24-7. Right. But sometimes in cases that we've seen, no one asks. No one ever asks. So there there are other examples I could give you. Um, Sometimes people who are held in forced labor will try and slip a note to someone. That's happened in nail salons. Um, There was a case in Ohio involving unaccompanied minors from Guatemala who had been trafficked into the United States and taken to a commercial egg farm, an enormous egg processing plant, where these children were held in forced labor. The traffickers had them living in a hovel of a mobile home with no running water, no heat in the middle of winter in Ohio, and one of the other people in the mobile home park realized that these kids didn't have any food and started taking them pizza Mm. and then let one of the children use the mobile phone that he had and that child called the person who was supposed to be taking care of him right the actual sponsor oh wow right right so these people who trafficked them weren't the sponsors they were the smugglers who actually turned out to be traffickers wow Interesting that you said, too, just about the reporting. We're, we're actually, for Human Trafficking Awareness Month, um, this month, is uh, one of our campaigns is, but what if you're right? 
yes, why not to talk great. yourself out of it. And um, I know, Margaret, you were really thinking of what can um, citizens do as far as feeling emboldened to help. I think that is one of the most important points of, you know, report if something seems odd. Um, and uh, Martina, when you said the hotline, I'm guessing the uh, National Human Trafficking Hotline, I know DHS also has a hotline. Um, I'll also mention that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has a hotline. Where our hotline's a little bit different is that, that we are a clearinghouse for mm-hmm. missing and exploited children, so any report coming into us will go to law enforcement. So, so you know that can be a dynamic, especially within human trafficking. Right. But I do think the other piece of that is, as a clearinghouse, we have access to huge amounts of data, database sources, and those reports coming in. So, again, that idea of don't talk yourself out of it. You, it may not be something that you feel like is the gravitas to call 911 or call the police, which in any situation where somebody's in danger, we would certainly say that's the first call. But for instance, um, my dad now has become one of the biggest tip contributors that I know because he's learned and wanting to be galvanized. And he called me so long ago and said, I'm at a truck stop and there's this kid and they look young to be there and I don't see a pair. And I was like, well, dad, you know, where, well, I already drove by actually, but it was off this exit. And I don't, he said, take everything you know and go to cybertiplight.org. Mm-hmm. and put it in because maybe we already have information about that area that yeah, every little absolutely. thing could add. And most recently, we've been doing training for rideshare drivers, and I was at kind of a similar story, which I think can really help people get excited. I said, A, report it. If you're not sure, report it. We will take that information and make sure it adds to the intelligence we already have. But B, um, if for whatever reason, also if you see a child and you're not sure, look on our missing kids website because... We have posters. It's one of the number one ways we are able to recover children. It was one of the most profound, like, oh, this is why we do this work. I was doing a training for law enforcement and, or for Uber drivers in Austin, and so I actually showed on our website. So and if you see a kid and all you have is their hair, eyes, and this, you can look, or age range, you can just filter by that and see the young people we have reported missing currently. Afterwards, 17 stories come back of people saying, oh, I saw this, I wish I'd call it, or make a report, make a report. And then a man came up and he said, I saw this. And I said, oh, absolutely, make a report, please. And he goes, not only am I going to make a report, held up his phone and goes, this is her. Oh, wow. During, it was like, oh, my goodness, yeah, this that's conversation. Powerful. So if you're wondering whether or not it could make an impact, I think, to, to both of your points, making sure that we're taking notice so, so I important. think all of that is true, and but I think Eliza are on this are on the same page as well, in that we have to have to also be careful because sometimes phoning it in, particularly to a law enforcement agency, results in that person being arrested. Yeah, right. And absolutely. So, so in this environment where people who are undocumented are in such danger, mm-hmm. there there has to be sort of a level of care, and. There are hotlines that you can report to. Basically, the the National Human Trafficking Hotline gives people a choice. Do you want to report this to law enforcement or no? And they're supposed to abide by that choice. And so, you know, the mantra, I think, for all of us is do no harm, right? And so I'm I'm actually very careful. I had an experience once where, um, you know, I was talking to an FBI agent once, and they were like, how can we find more forced labor cases? And I said, well, go to the park and talk to the nannies, right? The nannies all know. The nannies know 
who's being held in forced labor. They know who's a victim of wage theft. They know who's working 24-7. They all know, right? What you need is an intelligence network of domestic workers. Yeah, really? (laughs) So get a dog and go to the park. And there was a woman that I knew from this sort of intelligence network of domestic workers. There was a woman I knew who was working 24-7 and never had a day off. And, you know, I tried to approach her and give her my card. Um, and I, but I talked to a prosecutor and said, you know, should I essentially call in a rescue? Right, right okay. Should I call someone in? And her response was, you have no idea what's going on in that person's life. Right? You don't know. And so you don't want to necessarily call in a so-called rescue because they can be so counterproductive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I found out much, much later um, was that um, this person's family was being held by the traffickers in her country of origin. And so if we had called in a so-called rescue, it could have done really horrendous harm. Right. So I think children are slightly different. Right? Children are a different category, but for adults, I feel like it's our duty to make avenues of escape possible, but adults have to make their own determination about what's safe and what's not. Right. And so adults have to decide whether they want to go through the door that you've opened or whether they think it's safer for them to stay. So it's these are really hard calls. Absolutely. To make. Just reiterates the complexity. Yeah, but I would be careful about reporting necessarily to law enforcement unless it's a case of tremendous danger or a child. And I think to, yeah. to second something you said too, and Margaret, you were talking about involvement. It's also really important for individuals who do want to get involved and intervene to recognize how just going out on the street and thinking that they could be helpful inadvertently could be doing harm as well. Yes. Um, and so making sure and there are, I, I wrote them down, and I'm sure I'd still forget some, but, but many, many resources in D.C. area already that could help um, if people are really wanting to get more directly involved in this issue. But we certainly know, for instance, if um, you're worried that a young person may be being trafficked, that likely means that they're being watched. And so you even going up to talk to them could be inadvertently putting them at risk. So I think there are these judge law don't talk yourself out of engaging and re- reporting um, that at the same time um, recognize your role there. And uh, I, I remind myself often uh, that you know, I may not be able to help every child, but there is not a child who cannot be helped. So what mm-hmm. can I do to ensure that we're in that direction? There's certainly a plethora of different resources available and tip lines um, regarding if you're comfortable to report to law enforcement. D.C. has its Suspicious Activity Report. That's the iWatchDC.org platform. If you feel more comfortable reporting to the National Hotline, that's available along with the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. Um, And again, emphasizing that, and the term that I use for people when we do outreach trainings, it's like if you feel hanky, (laughs) <laughs> and that seems to be a word that sticks with people. If you feel hanky about something, report it. And um, me personally, I've uh, submitted a SAR reporting several different times regarding incidents where my niece and nephew um, who have been visiting me, that there's you know a suspicious person, that something just isn't right, or something that I've seen online where this indicates that this is something maybe beyond... Um, you know, just a normal um, interaction. 
um, I always have this uh, interesting dilemma with myself internally where it's like, all right, is this child having a temper tantrum normally or is there really something going on that's, you know, beyond just normal developmental, you know, temper tantrums? Um, but if something sits with you that makes you uncomfortable, I think it's important to report it. Because worst case scenario, or I guess maybe best case scenario, is that there is no issue going on um, and that law enforcement or whoever is vetting those tips can just say, you know, there isn't something horrible going on here. Well, and I think that's why organizations like those mentioned exist. Again, we're National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. We're not law enforcement. We are a clearinghouse. And so to add upon that, one of the things that, that I can tell you is we're about to get our, I should know it's our 3 millionth or 30 millionth, which is a really <laughs> big difference, call to our hotline um, and Last year, we received over 18 million reports to our cyber tip line. We serve to be asking, to be the ones to ask those questions, mm. right? I would rather get all of the too small, hanky ideas that, that give people pause because we, can, we have mechanisms in place to prioritize, to be the clearinghouse, to make the connections. So we won't have that information if it doesn't come to us, right? Right. The other thing that's really useful on the labor trafficking side, too, though, is to provide people with access to services because the Department of Justice provides funding to a lot of organizations who do excellent service provision for particularly foreign-born victims of trafficking. And I think it's important just to drop a footnote just to note that trafficking victims can be U.S. citizens, they can be green card holders, yes. they can be foreign-born, they can have legal visas, they can have no visa at all, they can be completely undocumented, right? So it, it, it runs the entire gamut mm-hmm. in terms of citizenship status. And for people who are uh, for people who are foreign-born, and I think that the what I'm seeing is that more of the foreign-born trafficking victims are in forced labor, not not across the board, but I think proportionally more of the people in forced labor are, are foreign-born and are here either with or without visas. And for those folks, the Casa de Maryland and the Tahiri Justice Center and Ayuda, a number of organizations in D.C. provide both direct legal services mm-hmm. on the immigration side, but then they also have really excellent social services to help people connect with benefits that can help them survive as they're sort of making their path escaping from trauma. Right? Yeah, and so, again, the kids that we're serving, even for undocumented youth or foreign-born, the likelihood that they would get reported missing, unfortunately, is low. So, right. so yeah. I would say that that's not reflective of the trafficking victims and child sex trafficking victims broadly. Um, The majority of the children that we serve are U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents. Um, And I would reiterate that our our mission is to recover and reduce exploitation. We're not, we're very careful to make sure children's safety, so law enforcement's response should not be about any sort of documentation issues. Right. However, I would never um, get blame anybody for having pause or concern about law enforcement involvement. Yeah. But of the children we serve that I mentioned, so similar, just of, of the population we see, there's still so many dynamics, so both male, female, transgender youth, 6% of the kids that we identified as trafficked uh, last year were male, which is the highest we've had to date. I would say that's higher probably broadly because a lot of those kids, again, aren't reported to us. Right. and. 
the number one reason that I think kids aren't getting services, even beyond the fact that we don't have them, is because we don't identify them as trafficking victims. But we've uh, had reports from every U.S. state, every type of community. Um, and so I, I do think to think of this as somebody else's issue is a myth in itself as well. So, so a really important point as far as um, hitting every type of community and type of person. The other thing I just wanted to add is that for people who are trafficked and who want to have their day in court, mm. the justice system doesn't always support that, right? So ideally, everybody would get their day in court. Everybody would be able to hold their trafficker accountable. Um, but not every case actually moves that far. And, you know, not every trafficking survivor wants right. to go to court, right? So the people have, I think, very um, variable views about how they want a case to proceed. But in the data that we track, it's both national data, but we also track the D.C. data, um, what we find is that the vast majority of, in fact, 96% of, the cases that are prosecuted in the United States are sex trafficking cases. Oh, wow. And labor trafficking cases are almost never criminally prosecuted, which is really remarkable because what we see on the flip side, which is civil cases, which is trafficking survivors taking the traffickers to court in order to recover damages from the trafficker. So what we see... Getting restitution. Well, getting civil damages. So okay. you can get restitution through a criminal case. Oh, right? interesting. So in a criminal case, you can get victim restitution. But getting civil damages, actual like damages for harm in a civil case, um, what we find is that more than 80% of all of the civil cases ever filed since 2003 have been filed by victims of forced labor. Martina and Eliza, thank you so much for being with us. Again, my name is Margaret. I'm an intelligence analyst with the National Capital Region Threat Intelligence Consortium. Thanks for joining us for this week's bonus episode. If you're interested in reading our unclassified intelligence bulletins on human trafficking and other topics related to public safety, please visit ncrintel.org to subscribe to our distribution list. We'll catch you next week. This podcast is brought to you by Muriel Bowser, Mayor of Washington, D.C., and the District of Columbia Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency.